Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Bumble and Bumble Seaweed's invigorating shower ritual feels like an escape. Start with nutrient-infused shampoo and conditioner. The formula infused with royal sugar kelp, green microalgae, and Pacific sea kelp helps keep your scalp hydrated. Then open your jar of seaweed whipped scalp scrub to add two times more shine to your hair instantly. And before you head out, use seaweed air dry cream to give your hair that effortless beach look. Make your shower feel like an oasis with the Bumble and Bumble Seaweed Collection. Dive in now at bumbleandbumble.com. An abandoned town. Sightings of cryptids. Strange disappearances. And weird rock structures that no one can explain. It sounds like the start of horror fiction, but there's a place in New England where this is all true. Today, we talk to repeat guest Bill Presley, who has collected some interesting folklore from his family's home in Vermont. After you listen to the strange tales from this area, perhaps you too will have your own theory about what's really going on. Today, on The H-Files, on Homespun Hates. Hello, Hainted Loves. Welcome to Homespun Hates, H-Files edition. I'm Becky. And I'm Diana. And we have a repeat guest on the show today. You all remember Bill Presley. He basically researches rare genetic conditions that can be passed down through families, giving people hope for things that nobody knows a thing about yet. So he's doing some great work. But he does some weird stuff too, like he gets haunted all the time. He collects old Victorian medical instruments, which I am very envious of that collection. And he also writes fiction, horror fiction. He's just had his second novella published. So very excited for Bill. We heard from him earlier this season in April. He had an episode which was called Inherited Traits, Inherited Psychic Gifts. And it was a story about when Bill was almost possessed at University of Michigan, which is where he's at now working on his PhD. But this is when he was an undergrad. And he's back with us today, not to talk about another demonic possession story, but (laughs) he does have some amazing folklore to share with us from Vermont, which is something we haven't really explored very much yet. We have heard some very strange tales from New England, and this is not going to disappoint. You are going to really enjoy these tales, and they are going to leave you with a very, very spooky feeling. We're really excited to have him come back on and tell these (laughs) stories for us. We love a good dose of legends and folklore and old-fashioned spookiness, Americana spookiness. 
All good stuff. Mm-hmm. So speaking of uh, Americana, the southern half of this country, which is where I'm at, as you know, Diana, I am, <laughs> I am a hillbilly through and through. I like to pretend I'm all sophisticated and stuff. I went to art school in Chicago and pretend to be all elite while I sip my absinthe and dress in fine silks. No, I don't do any of that shit. But I... <laughs> <laughs> Deep, deep down, you're just a raccoon like me. Yes, I am. I'm such a trash panda. So (laughs) anyway, I like to pretend I like to go fancy places and think that I belong there. And then eventually somebody's like, why aren't you wearing any shoes? And I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah. So so this was made very clear to me very recently. Again, these things that just pop up and make me realize I'm not normal. And neither was my childhood. Right. We've got so much of that. That's why we I have know. a show. Right? Yes. <laughs> That's what our show is really about, guys. Yeah. <laughs> my daughter decides she wants to take violin, which is... Wait, very- now? Yes, right? <laughs> Didn't you have like six years on her by her age? Shh. Seven. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so not only does she sing and play guitar and she's taken piano, but now she's like, I want to join the school orchestra. And of course, she's like, I want to play the violin. I want to play the violin. And I'm like, ah, shit. All right. You can play the violin <laughs> because I can teach you. Because I used to be a violin teacher and I don't have to pay anybody else to teach you. And then I went to the violin rental store and I tried out the rental violin. And I was like, that's crap. What do you have that's better? So this girl got decked out with a beautiful violin. It was like the nicest one they would rent me. Of course, they charged me double. The higher quality the violin, the easier it is to play, and the less you're going to annoy your mother. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Sounding like screeching cats in the other room. (laughs) Yes, because I taught violin for many years, and I put up with that shit. And now I'm not going to do it anymore. I will pay the extra money for you to have a decent violin kid. We get home. And this is where I began to realize, now, like I said, at the violin shop, once I start asking them about their instruments and telling them what I'm looking for, they're used to these moms and dads coming in who don't know anything about music. They've been dealing with them all day. And then I walk in. (laughs) Next thing I know, I'm getting a tour of the back rooms. The luthiers are all excited about their projects. They're showing me. They want me to sample these like $20,000, one-of-a-kind, 200-year-old French violins. I'm like, all right, I am one sophisticated lady. Oh, yeah. We get home. My daughter's all excited about her new violin. And first thing you do when you get a new violin, violins don't have fretboards on the fingerboards. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are like, where do you know where to put your fingers? Well, you don't. Muscle memory. You have to build it. While you're learning, you put thin colored strips of tape where your fingers go. And then after you develop that muscle memory, you take the tapes off. Clever. Okay. Okay. So my daughter says, where are you going to get the tapes? And I said... I'm going to AutoZone <laughs> because you can use auto detailing tape for this purpose. Is this like the pinstripe that you put down mm-hmm. your door? Yes, exactly. Okay. That sounds like it'll never come off that rental violin. It comes off fine. Fine. Oh, okay. Yeah, trust me. I've been doing this for years. You've been there, done that with the $200,000 French violin. <laughs> <laughs> it's what my violin teacher always put on my strings. It's what I always put on my students. I, I used to always carry auto detailing tape with me. In fact, I just threw a bunch out before my daughter decided that she needed to learn violin. So I go to AutoZone, <laughs> I buy the tape, I put them on the violin. And my husband comes down as I'm doing this. And he's like, you know, they, they sell tape just for this specific purpose. 
he's on the like violin teachers website where I order a lot of my supplies. And he's like, you could just buy tapes. It's just for the violin. It's made just for this. And I was like, oh, I had no idea. I always thought you had to go to AutoZone. <laughs> I had no idea. This is something other people do. Yeah, I just <laughs> thought you just go down to the, the, the auto supply store or Billy Bob's or the hardware store. Wherever you can buy detailing tape, you just get some, whatever color they have. There are so many things in life that I say the same thing about. Yep. Like, <laughs> wait, there's a product made for this? Right. Oh, I see. It's more expensive. I'll, I'll stick to the auto detailing tape. Thank you. Right. Yeah. So then my daughter says, my orchestra director says, I need a really soft cloth to keep in my case to clean my violin with daily. And I said, oh, yeah, exactly. So the best thing to use is an old cloth diaper. And I get this look and she's like, is that what you had to use? And I was like, yeah, I use my old diapers. I mean, they had some stains on them, but I knew they were clean. I was like, if you're lucky, I'll find one without stains on it for you. Why do you have cloth diapers? Because they're really soft and they clean violins really well. <laughs> Again, this is what this product is for. <laughs> Apparently, they make cloths just for your violin. <laughs> I didn't. Yeah, but I mean, that's, what? That, this, is how, this is how I grew up. I grew up with a used diaper in my violin case along with auto detailing tape on my fingerboard. Oh, it gets even better. She goes, Mom, how do I learn vibrato? <laughs> and I'm like... Oh, that's easy. We just get an old film canister and we put dry lima beans in it. And then you just shake that until you get the sound right. And then once you get the motion oh right gosh. doing that, then you can feel vibrato on your violin. And she's like, what's a film canister? What are lima beans? I'm like, you know, they probably make something like this. But we used film canisters. And same thing. My violin teacher would like have all her old film canisters. She would save them and she'd go buy like a thing of beans and she'd pour a little in each student's film canister. And then when we were done with it, we'd return it to her and she'd give it to another student. And at this point, she's just like, she's just looking at me. She's like, oh my God, mom, please tell me what the hell did your first violin look like if you're using like auto products and things stained with baby shit on them and you know to clean it and I was like kid are you kidding me they didn't even give me a violin and they gave me a cigar box with a ruler duct tape to it and that was what I had to learn how to hold for like two months until they were confident I went and dropped a violin and and get this it's even better it wasn't like my mother made this herself. No, they had stockpiles of these cigar boxes with rulers duct taped to them. And then when a new student would start, they would get a little loner cigar box ruler contraption to learn how to hold. I bet that doesn't cost as much to rent. And then once they could hold it correctly, then they got the actual violins. Like, oh, good, you can hold the cigar box under your chin. I'm explaining all wow. of this to me and it hit me. <laughs> I was like, I think this really defines just how hick I grew up. Is this how most people learn an instrument <laughs> with cigar boxes? Yep, public school. That's uh, no, that's no, this the wasn't, same thing this, today. I think. No, these are my no? private violin lessons. Oh, this is your violin teacher, not at school. No, this is my, oh my private gosh. violin lessons. This is how I learned with. Used diapers, nice. auto detailing tape, lima beans, film canisters, and cigar boxes. 
Her mother paid for the lima beans in the film canister method. <laughs> Filled character. <laughs> now the diapers I think she provided herself. Oh, mountain people. <laughs> so other classically trained musicians out there. Is this normal? Or is this a hillbilly thing? I must know. Or is this a poverty? In living in the woods sticks thing. Because I learned a classical instrument from some very unconventional means. And apparently, you can just buy these things. You don't have to use your old diapers. Yeah, but what else are you using them for, really? They make the best rags. They're so soft. I had the opposite experience. I finally decided a, an instrument I wanted to play was the guitar. Because mm. I had a crush on someone who played guitar. And I was like, ooh, we could talk about guitar stuff. If I learned how to play the guitar, that was the only motivation. Well, I told my mom, I kind of want to learn how to play guitar. She got so excited, she went out and bought me an antique guitar worth hundreds and hundreds of dollars and a huge antique amp that matched it. Oh, my God. Electric to learn on. Now, I'm I'm 13 <laughs> at a public school carrying around on a school bus carrying around this antique <laughs> very valuable guitar that I have no idea what to do with. So ridiculous. I finally realized I'm going to have to fend for myself here. And I saved up and bought like a $15 guitar so I could learn on something low pressure. I was too afraid to play it. Plus, how do you like jam at a public school with an electric guitar? And no amp. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just carry your amp on the bus. The backpack already weighs like 500 pounds. Yeah, right. No. Right. Anyway, so I just had to share because I thought that was amusing. I really kind of thought I had more of an elite education, but apparently I learned this classical instrument on a cigar box with lima beans and auto detailing tape and diapers. See, it's going to so, come out of the woodwork. Every great musician also learned on lima beans and cigar boxes. I want to hear it. I want to know how did you, yeah. if you, if you play an instrument, how did you learn? Did you have some crazy contraption. What did you have to do to learn how to play your instrument correctly? What kind of crazy contraptions were you forced into? And I do want to mention, since we're talking about music, one thing that happened all the time in the second house we lived in, the one where my mother saw the strange orbs in the woods, will of the wisps, I don't know what they were, she saw. That was where I always heard somebody calling my name whenever I practiced. Oh. Kind of like that white noise. I always heard it. Like I always heard noise. my mother. always heard my mother calling my name. And it's happening to my daughter now, too. Every day. <gasps> Wait, really? When she's practicing her instrument or anything, she keeps running out of her room. Mom, what do you want? I didn't call you. So that's another, another little, that's the way I'm tying the music back to the ghosts. Tying the music back to the ghosts. Yes. Wow. That's creepy. It is creepy. It says we're going to be talking about deep woods, off the beaten path folklore. <laughs> that's my off the beaten path story from my childhood. Mixing it in with a little music. I do want to point out that if you are not a member of our Patreon yet, Please check it out. We are having so much fun on there with all of the bonus episodes that we've been putting out. We've had a lot of fun with our, our After Dark episodes. <laughs> we want to give a shout out to Allison and Kimberly, who just upped their pledges. Thank you so much. It's so wonderful to have you both a part of our Patreon. We love every single one of you. It is what gives us hope and light in this dark world. 
our Patreon. <laughs> we love it. If you too would like to check out all the bonus content that we have on our Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash homesfunhates, where you get bonus content and you get episodes without the commercials. And then also other freebie fun things like swag and free tarot readings and all sorts of cool stuff. So please go check it out. And if you are not interested in Patreon, but you do want to see a little extra goofy content from time to time, do check out our TikTok at Homespun Haints. We're really trying. We're trying to get a thousand followers. Why are we trying to get a thousand followers? Because we want to do live shows. We're going to be together in October doing all sorts of spooky stuff. And we want to be able to bring it to you live, but TikTok won't let us unless we have a thousand followers. So please, 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 please go follow us on TikTok. I'm begging you here. Please, golly, please. <laughs> anyway, before we go on too many more tangents, Hainted Loves, please warmly welcome yet again, the haunted, the brilliant, the scientific why why if you why? have t-mobile 5g home internet you might be hearing this why? a lot why every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours why why because your network gives priority to cell phone users why good question why not switch to cox internet with two times faster download speeds than t-mobile 5g home internet during peak hours okay stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5g home for details t-mobile prioritizes certain t-mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion how powerful is cox internet so powerful that one day your daughter will be able to simulate a soccer match against some of the world's best players right from your backyard get gig speeds powered by fiber from cox it's internet built for tomorrow today internet delivered through cox's hybrid fiber coax network speeds vary and are not guaranteed cox terms and other restrictions apply What is it that makes us so interested in what we don't understand? We're setting out to investigate everything strange, unusual, and scary in our world. They're going to be able to scan your brain and upload it to a computer. Some people think of it as like the greatest victory that we could ever have because right. it makes you immortal in a sense. I think it's terrifying. It Me is too. terrifying. We invite guests who bring their own personal perspectives. I mean, especially considering the fact that the overwhelming majority of UFO sightings and documentation occurs within miles of nuclear testing facilities. Yeah. They bring their own encounters with the paranormal. All of a sudden, I feel this whoosh of wind and this ringing in my ears so loud that makes me stand up straight. And we both had this moment of, you know, maybe we should get out of here. It was a hot summer day and a hot night but when I went into this one room it was freezing and I to this day it felt like somebody was going to push me down the stairs a few months into living at the new house I was woken up to the lamps being on and the snow globe music box going off hello and most of all we just have a ton of fun Are you tired of websites that have been Frankenstein together? Oh, my website is so slow and creaky. Every time I use the search bar, it just returns Abby normal over and over again. Becky's sister company, The Concept Spot, holds the secret to life itself and can create new life from nothing. In fact, we've been giving life to highly functional websites for the last 25 years using premium parts. We swear we didn't salvage from graveyards. Ooh, check out that head. 
character image. Instead of going, <laughs> my new website purrs. Need a blog? The Concept Spot can do that. Want an online store? We can do that too. We build our sites from the cellular level. No reused templates or discarded body parts here. So we can make your site do whatever you want and look however you want. <gasps> it's gorgeous! I can't even see the stitches. We can also resurrect your dead website if rigor mortis has set in. Oh, it's like a new man. If you think homespun haints is frighteningly genius, you should see our websites. Let your favorite ghoulish gals, Becky and Diana, build you a monstrous website that will wreak havoc on the internet for years to come. Visit theconceptspot.com for more information. It's live! It's live! Jacques would never eat. Not a single bite. Just sip from his glass of wine. He was a vampire. He was a vampire. 100% a vampire. Holy buckets. My name is Ashley, and this is my co-host, Lauren. Hello, weirdos. And you are listening to Keep It Weird. Today on the show, we are so excited to bring back a guest that you heard from earlier this year, Bill Presley, who is a geneticist out of University of Michigan. Is that a good way to describe Well, grad student. I don't know if I qualify as a real scientist yet. Oh, yes, you do. You're doing research. You're getting published. You're a real scientist. Bill, thank you so much for coming on again. We're so excited that you've come back. We heard from Bill. Do you remember what the name of the episode was, Diana? Inherited traits, inherited gifts. Yes. Did you like yes. what we did with that, by the way? I did. Apparently, yes. Did. We're still here. So I did. Yes. back. I, I forgot that people that I work with follow me on Twitter. So now everybody makes comments about my <laughs> good, good comments? It's, it's just interesting. It's not something you hear about when <laughs> what we do. So sometimes it's a little bit of a side eye. Sometimes it's an excited question. You reached out to us because in addition to all of your science work, you are also an author, you've written fiction, you've written on folklore, and you are about to have a book, Death Reflects, published again by Little Demons, the the same publisher that published your book on Yella. It's so funny when people ask me how Anila is selling, and I'm like, I should have just called it Angela then. (laughs) (laughs) But there is no other book named Anyella. This is true. With Death Reflects, you are focusing on New England folklore. You were telling me before we hit record that your mother grew up in a rural town in Vermont. And so a lot of New England folklore has been passed down to you. And I think this is going to be very fascinating for our listeners because it sounds like you're digging deep into some really interesting things that a lot of people have never heard of before. We're really excited to hear you talk about this. It's something I really grew up with. My mother's family has been in the U.S. since literally the Mayflower. And one of the family names is Putnam. So if you've read The Crucible, you know who the Putnams are. And it turns out that we are actually descended from the Putnams. So when I, I grew up with a lot of just spooky New England stories, hearing about Dudley Town and the Witch Trials and Emily's Bridge. So I really wanted to, for the second book in the series 
do something related to that and go back to Vermont because they think there's a really good story to be heard around Glastonbury Mountain because it's really creepy and it's been presented in pop culture in, in veiled ways over the years. In fact, one of the disappearances on the mountain inspired a Shirley Jackson novel. And if you are familiar with the Disney comic Maneater Mountain, that was probably, they think, inspired by Glastonbury since it came out right as the disappearances were national news. And yet you talk to people even in Vermont, and they're like, what is that? So I, I, I really wanted to tell this story because I think it's such a good story. Well, I've never heard of it. It said it's Glastonbury Mountain. That's what it's called. Mm -hmm. I believe it's the Green Mountains National Forest. It's Bennington County, Vermont. And Vermont's not a very populous place to begin with. So I imagine no. this is... <laughs> This is pretty rural. Have you ever been there yourself? I have not. So I have been to two of the other sort of big Vermont locations. One is Emily's Bridge, which is kind of a New England staple. It's supposedly haunted by a woman who threw herself off of the Goldbrook Bridge after she was jilted by a lover, and now she's supposed to haunt the bridge. So it's a very popular site with local ghost hunters. And funnily enough, I was 10 when I went there and actually after begging to go there, wouldn't get out of the car, which is a big leap from living in an apartment with a demon. Yeah. Right. Well, you want to tell us about Glastonbury Mountain, correct? Yes. And I'll set the scene for you because it is just such a creepy place. If you've never been to the Green Mountains in Vermont, it's really dramatic scenery, especially in the fall. Glastonbury Mountain is in Bennington County, and there's an area, a region within Bennington County around the mountain that's called Hell's Hollow. And it's just so dramatic in the fall because between the mountain cliffs and these beautiful orange and red, the fall foliage, these beautiful orange and red trees, it looks like you're standing in fire and brimstone. So it's a really dramatic setting. And the mountain itself is home to a ghost town. So originally in the early to mid-1800s, when charcoal was the fuel of choice, Glastonbury Mountain was settled as a mining town. And once coal came onto the scene, the town was in trouble. And so what they tried to do was convert it into a resort with a casino and everything else in the late 1800s. And they converted the railroad line into an electric trolley. And it only made it one year because of all of the deforestation around the mountain. There was a freshet that washed everything away within the first year. And so it's just been abandoned ever since. So you go up onto this mountain and this dramatic scenery, and you've got these crumbling buildings everywhere. There is also this weird collection of stone cairns right off the Long Trail, which is the main trail that runs through the mountain. And nobody's sure where they came from. They've been examined, and it's thought that the origin is ancient, so Native American, which is interesting because there are stories stretching all the way back to Native American times about how they would not go near the mountain, they felt the land was cursed, that it was infested with spirits, that there were a lot of people that went up to the mountain and disappeared, and supposedly they were actually eaten by a stone. There's a Native American legend of a man-eating stone on that mountain, and it moved, apparently, and wherever it was at one given time, if you were near it, it would just open up and swallow you. <laughs> and this is this is the first in a long line of cryptid tales about that mountain. People claim to have seen literally everything but Elvis up there. I mean, Bigfoot and demons and UFOs, anything you can imagine they've seen on that mountain. The mountain itself 
is the center of what's now called the Bennington Triangle. It's a term that was coined by the author Joseph Citro, and it's the area in Bennington County primarily centered around Glastonbury Mountain, and it rose to prominence during the period between 1945 and 1950. There were a string of five unexplained disappearances, starting with Mitty Rivers. He was a hunting guide, very experienced with the area, who took a group of people up the long trail, split off from the group, and just completely disappeared. They never found him, never found the body. All they ever found of him was a single shotgun shell. Whoa. Mm-hmm. And then right after that, and everybody in Vermont knows about this, one of the most famous disappearances in Vermont history was the disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon, who inspired the Shirley Jackson novel called Hangsman. So she was a Bennington College student. She came back to her dorm that night. She looked frazzled. And so she said, I'm going to take a short walk. This is December 1st in Vermont. So it got quite cold that night. She left in just a hoodie, like a light jacket and jeans, planning to come back. And it's important to note that the hoodie was red because there's some lore about if you wear red on Glastonbury, you're going to disappear. That's that's just like a thing there. (laughs) And so she did. She was last seen right by the base of the mountain, disappeared. Again, they never found a body, never figured out what happened to her. And this was a huge manhunt because her parents were very wealthy financers from Connecticut. And the fact this was the first time helicopters were used in a missing person search in Vermont, and it led to the establishment of the Vermont State Police, but never found her. Shortly after this, and this is probably the weirdest disappearance James Tedford goes missing around the base of the mountain. He is an old veteran. He lives in the veteran's home in Bennington. He's coming back to Bennington from visiting family elsewhere in Vermont. And he was seen at the last stop between St. Albans, where he was, and the veteran's home in Bennington. So he was on the bus after the last stop. They stopped the bus at the veteran's home. He's not there. His luggage is still on the bus. His travel guide is still on the bus. He's just gone. He just disappeared. What? (laughs) Based on where it happened, he's supposed to have disappeared right around the base of the mountain in Bennington County. Hmm. That is worth noting with this case, they didn't actually interview anyone until two weeks after he disappeared. So no one's sure exactly how good the eyewitness accounts of what happened were, but they never did find him. He was just gone. Weird. And then a nine-year-old boy, Paul Jepson, disappears right after that. His parents are pig farmers. They're going to check on one of their pens. So they park the truck near the base of the long trail, right where Paula Weldon disappeared. The parents go to check on the animals. The kid wanders off in a red hoodie. And he's never seen again. They never find the kid. And when they interviewed the parents, the father kept saying, oh, well, for days he's been talking about the mountain. He wanted to go up to the mountain. He's probably up on the mountain. Search the mountain. They don't find him. And one of the more gruesome bits about this disappearance is one of the possibilities is that the parents are mentioning Glastonbury over and over again to the press because at this point it's known that there's something weird going on, that people keep disappearing. And they think it might have been to cover up the fact that they wanted to get rid of the kid so they actually killed him and fed him to their pigs. Oh, wow. Oh. But whatever happened, they didn't find a body. And what time frame exactly was this going on during? This is between 1945 and 1950. 
The final disappearance happened in 1950, right before the Maneater Mountain Comet came out. This was Frida Langer. This was another woman who was very experienced with the landscape around Glastonbury Mountain, very experienced hiker. She's hiking with her husband and her cousin. Her husband hurts his knee. He goes back to camp, so she's just out with the cousin. And while she's out with the cousin, she falls in a stream and decides she wants to change into some dry clothes. So she goes back to see her husband at the camp and never makes it back to the camp. Disappears into the woods. They never find her. And then over a year later, after they've done a whole manhunt, they've combed the area, they find her body out in a clearing that they had searched over and over again, almost like it was staged there. That's the last of the canonical Glastonbury disappearances. Wow. Well, and she's the only Creepy. one where they actually found the body. Yep. Again, it was almost like it was staged. They found the body somewhere they had looked over and over. And I mean, I guess an animal could have drug it out there too, but... Yeah, but an animal would have probably picked it clean. Right. She wouldn't be intact. They wouldn't know it was her. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and this was so over a year weird. later, so there's... Right. Yeah. Odd. Well, what seems strange is other than the red hoodie, it doesn't seem like there's a clear pattern. Other than the two people in the red hoodie were at the base of the mountain, but... If the parents are actually to blame for that one, then they could have just set it up to look exactly like the other one. Right. Because they did kind of drop him off right where Paula Weldon disappeared. Right. But the others, it's like, I mean, you're on a bus, you're an experienced hiker, you're not an experienced hiker. The body's found, the body's never found. It's just, it's odd how there's no real clear pattern. Yes. And there are a lot of different theories about what actually happened to them. And one actually has to do with a mental patient from Glastonbury Mountain. So in 1892, Henry McDowell was one of the settlers in Fayville, which was one of the original villages that made up the Glastonbury town settlement. And so in 1892, he bludgeoned another settler, John Crowell. He bludgeoned John Crowell to death with a rock and said that the voices in his head made him do it. So uh -oh. he was taken to the Vermont State Hospital in Waterbury, Vermont, which was an insane asylum. He didn't last for long, though. Apparently a very intelligent man. They had him working out in the coal yards at the state hospital, and he hid himself on a train car under the coal and actually escaped the asylum. So people think that this crazy old man, after he escaped the asylum, because they never found him again, somehow made it back to the mountain, and he was the one that was killing these people. But that's 50 years later, 60 years later, right? Right. He would have been old. He would have been very yeah. old. Yeah. It's so hard to imagine an 80-year-old homeless man bludgeoning right. a young woman and a young man and a little boy. So some people think that he was actually possessed and he had like demonic strength. And that's the reason that he was able to do this. Because there are so many stories of spirits and demons on this mountain. People think that there might be like an open door on that mountain. Another theory about the disappearances is that they were eaten by the Glastonbury monster. So this is similar to the story about the rock. Glastonbury has its own Bigfoot that's supposed to be walking around. And there are reports of this Bigfoot that go all the way back to the 1800s. And some people think that the Bigfoot is actually a crazed settler. There's a New York Times article from, I believe, the 1870s where there's a report of a wild man living in the caves, roaming around the mountain. 
The story goes that there was a settler, it's a case of demonic possession, the demons drove him crazy, ultimately possessed him, and then what happened was almost like a case of lycanthropy. Over time, he morphed into this horrible Bigfoot-like creature, and now he roams the mountain killing people. Oh, wow. This story has never been linked to Legends of Wendigo, though, correct? No, not that I know of. Interesting. Do they have a name for this Bigfoot, or do they just call it a Bigfoot? They call it the Glastonbury Monster. So that's pretty much what it's known as. And for a long time, it was like the champ of that region. It was on letterheads and everything else, these drawings of Bigfoot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, nice. Of course, got to exploit it for commercialism. Of course. So we're counting. We've got the Glastonbury Monster. We've got the Rock Biter. What was he called again? Just the Man-Eating Rock. (laughs) Man-Eating Rock. (laughs) And then the mad guy who escaped from the asylum. Who is different from the guy in the New York Times article. Yes. Living in caves. Interesting. All right. Okay. Any other cryptids living on this place? Well, if you look hard enough, like I said, you can find an example of someone who's seen literally anything on the mountain. It's also a big <laughs> UFO hunting spot. I was going to say, I'm sure there's some UFO theories going oh, on in yeah. this place. And what's really cool is there's an urban legend about a cult that lives on that mountain. And if you Uh-oh. talk to some of the locals, some of them will tell you that there's supposedly this group of people that lives on this mountain completely undetected in the wilderness And every now and then you spot one in town when they need to get supplies. And they'll basically tell you, like, stay out of the wooded areas of the mountain. You won't come back. We don't like outsiders up there. Oh, but people have actually documented interactions with some of these people as they come into town. I mean, well, yes and no. So it's never in an official capacity. It's like an interview in some local newspaper or some Reddit post or something. But this is an ongoing local legend that there's some kind of weird cult living up there right now. Oh, my goodness. So this is a fairly recent thing, then, the cult. I mean, people have talked about this for 50 years, 60 years, but it continues to be something people talk about that every now and then they see these weird forest people in town that will tell them to stay the hell off the mountain. Mm. It sounds like good Mm. advice based on everything else. Yes. You know, they (laughs) might just be making moonshine up there. Well, that's true. (laughs) We had that in Tennessee, too. It's just bootleggers. (laughs) Like, stay away. We'll shoot you. It gets awfully cold up there, though. You wouldn't be able to ferment mash, like, every month of the year, maybe half the year. So you mentioned demons and ghosts as well, correct? Yes. That people have seen? So tell us a little bit about that. It's almost like the Ed Warren meme where he's always going demons. That's the explanation for everything on the mountain. Henry McDowell was possessed by demons. The Bigfoot is a settler that was possessed by demon. The man-eating rock is a demon. The people that disappeared, it was demons. <laughs> I gotcha. see, I see. So I came up with this insane theory. that ma- It makes no sense realistically, but it made for a damn good horror novel, I think. That I tied it all together. So my theory was after Henry McDowell escaped from the asylum, I I say that it's true that he wasn't crazy. He was demonically possessed. He made it back to the mountain and started this sort of cult for the occult that practiced speculum, which is really unfortunately named because when I first started reading about speculum, I thought it was going to be like some kind of weird gynecology ritual. And it's... (laughs) Oh my. (laughs) So I don't know if I was disappointed or surprised, but it turns out it's like this almost medieval form of mirror magic where you can manipulate reality 
by manifesting your will onto the mirror. So they're up there doing these occult rituals and obviously they need to keep recruitment up. So the disappearances are people that they're kidnapping and basically saying you can join us or you can die. And then I explain the cryptids by saying that they wanted to keep people off the mountain so the members of the cult learned how to create tulpas. And all the cryptids people are seeing are tulpas to keep them away. Crafty. I like that theory. It's very cool. And it does <laughs> it does track. It actually pulls everything together in a way that probably no other theory does. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this is in the book Death Reflects? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and it sounds totally insane, but like a really good ghost story, you can't really say it didn't happen. Right? Uh-huh. Very true. <laughs> Very true. Cool. You haven't had experiences specifically in this place. No, I've never been to this part of Vermont. Would you go with all the stories? I would totally go. Even if just to see the Karens, I would totally go in the daytime. And I would stay on the trail. (laughs) (laughs) And wear black. Yes. (laughs) So I guess that's another question. All of the disappearances, were they people veering off of the trail? Can you say you're pretty safe if you stay on the trail? Well, nobody really knows, but I will say that every time a disappearance is mentioned, somehow it comes back to they were just seen on the long trail, which is the main trail up the mountain. So I guess you can't really say it's totally safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So we don't know for sure if those people wandered off or not. And was it daytime or nighttime? It was usually around dusk time. I believe Paula Weldon was a little bit after five o'clock, but they say the most popular time for disappearances on that mountain is between three or four in the winter when the sun's kind of starting to go down. All right. Well, you know what to do. Go in the summer at noon and go in June. (laughs) Do not wear red. Actually, I think I kind of want to see the other side of it. I just bought this red Burberry hoodie and I kind of want to know if I'm right, so... Maybe I will go up there and try to get kidnapped. Yeah, and... but you'll never be able to come back and tell anybody if you were or not. That's true, but it's an escape from grad school. Well, oh. <laughs> just bring a nice long range CB radio or something. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Every time someone on my cohort says something like, you know, wouldn't it just be great to just escape into the woods and never be seen again? I think, well, I know a place. that. <laughs> <laughs> if you're planning an experiment, right. <laughs> I'll be your control Here's a red Burberry. Yeah, here's my red hoodie. <laughs> Why is it that red is the color that attracts the man-eating beast? I don't know. And part of me thinks it's because Paula Weldon was wearing red and that was so highly publicized that the Jepson case was staged and they dressed him in red on purpose and dropped him off where Paula Weldon is to make it look like another Paula Weldon-like disappearance. And that's how that legend might have been born. So we don't know if James or Frida had red on or not. Not that I know of, no. Well, I know where we're going next time we go to Vermont. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) I'm excited. If you're interested in my New England folk tales, I have two short stories that just came out in two different anthologies. From the Yonder Three, that's based on Emily's Bridge. And Indomitable Inc., I wrote one based on the Belfry House. Okay, excellent. Yeah, we'll make sure that we link to that. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those places as well? Yeah, so Emily's Bridge is kind of the go-to haunt in Vermont. If you read any haunted guide, you'll hear about Emily's Bridge. And it's supposedly haunted by... The story is not very exciting, but the sightings continue to be exciting. It's haunted by the spirit 
of a lover who was supposed to meet her fiance on the bridge and he never showed up. So some accounts she threw herself into the brook and some accounts she hung herself on the bridge. And to this day, people continue to report seeing her and being scratched while they're on the bridge and having just really bad feelings about the bridge. Although based on the research, there never was an Emily in that area. So I don't know how true the actual story was, but it's definitely worked its way into uh, New England vernacular. Well, if people report these things happening, even if it never really happened, do you think it's possible that just the sheer belief of enough people that something like that has happened and that you will get scratched or you will encounter something on that bridge could sort of manifest into that actually happening? Yeah, I think it's totally possible. And sometimes I wonder, again, not to get too Ed Warren, but maybe someone did something on that bridge that they should not have done on that bridge because of the legend. And that's brought something negative to the area. If you're familiar with Dudley Town in Connecticut, that's really a popular explanation for what happened in Dudley Town. So it's this old settlement from 16-1700s, supposedly the Dudley family that founded it was cursed. Their distant ancestor was beheaded by Henry VIII that put a curse on the family and that supposedly followed them to the New World. And when they created this new settlement, everybody that was in the settlement either died or went crazy. It's a ghost town, it's completely abandoned, and during the 60s and 70s, people used to go out there and do seances, and there were all kinds of like mock satanic rituals happening around the town to the point where now you can't even get there. It's totally blocked off. The state of Connecticut does not want people there. But the thought is that because they were doing all of that in that area, that's why this town, this ghost town, is so haunted now. That actually falls along with some other places. Uh, like, for instance, last year we talked about Bachelor's Grove, just south of Chicago. It's considered to be the most haunted cemetery in the U.S. It was originally set up during the Civil War, but it was also used as a dumping ground during the Chicago mobster era. And every single grave there has been desecrated from people coming over and doing rituals and seances, Ouija boards, you name it. So it stirred up a lot of stuff. And some of the legends there are absolutely incredible. There's like a weird donkey man thing that people see. <laughs> the story behind it is that a man was plowing and he got struck by lightning. And now his ghost is like a weird combination of him and his donkey like head. It's just a weird theory. Like <laughs> the things people see there are unbelievable. But again, same thing. So much energy was generated there from people coming in afterwards and sacrificing animals and whatnot all over the place that it ended up creating this really weird space. That's kind of what happened to the Belfry House, very near where my mother grew up, right outside of Hardwick, Vermont. And it was originally owned by Governor Charles Bell. And the story is that his daughter died during a botched abortion. So they buried her in the old dirt floor basement and her spirit is supposed to haunt the house. And for a long time, that house was abandoned and people kept breaking in there and doing seances and everything else. So now people report all kinds of weird phenomena in the house. They see ghostly visions up in the windows and doors opening and closing and lights on that are not supposed to be on. In fact, one of the stories, I'm sure this is not true, but it's a really fun legend, is that the house was abandoned because anyone who lived in the house was driven mad by the spirit and she would convince them to go down to the basement and try to dig her up. 
And once they had the whole dog, she would shove them in and push the dirt back over them and they would get buried alive. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> tricky. <laughs> My maternal grandfather is a carpenter. And so when a new owner bought the house and decided to refurbish it, his crew is the one that went up and refurbished that house. And part of the reason these stories are so exaggerated is the new owner did not want people in his house anymore. So he went around telling everybody about how if you go into the house, the demon will kill you. So stay out of my house. Did your grandfather's crew cement over the dirt floor in the basement? I don't know. I'll have to ask him. I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently some of his crew did do some digging down there just to see if they oh. could find anything. And they <laughs> they never actually found the supposed daughter. So I don't even know if there's any bodies down there. Because oh. I, I think the new owner also kind of wanted her out of there if she was in there. So maybe he sanctioned the digging. Yeah. I think it was kind of like a just move her along kind of thing. Let's not make a big deal out of this. But they never found anybody. New England definitely has a very specific flavor of folklore. I know they also do witch globes out there. And I, between the Polish and the New England, I'm pretty superstitious. So I do have a witch globe hanging in my entryway. I don't know what you call them. They're like the buoys that you put on fishing nets, those old glass buoys. <laughs> And supposedly you'd want to hang them up because if a witch cursed you, the curse would reflect off of the witch globe and hit the witch. Clever. Kind of like my convex mirrors on the front of my business with the haunted parking lot across the street. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Feng shui, yep, yep, like that, reflected that, outward. <laughs> that's a feng shui technique, apparently, <laughs> by <laughs> at least one person's definition. So a witch globe is, like you said, it's a glass fishing, old school fishing bobber. Yeah, like a like a fishing net buoy. There's got to be a word for it. I actually have one, but I didn't know what it was. Oh. <laughs> it was you... just in my mom's stuff. So. I was going to say it was probably something that your mom left behind. Of course. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I have to know, you said that your colleagues and other members of your cohort follow you on Twitter and do know that you have written these books and they probably listened to this episode and they know that you had an apartment with a demon in it. <laughs> have you gotten any pushback on any of that? Not in a negative way. I'm a little bit of a hermit in my free time. I tend to stay in my little office I have here and write. So it's not like I'm constantly at social functions. So I think there's this impression now that that's just Bill. That's that's just Bill. <laughs> <laughs> He talks about demons and he writes about demons, but he's kind of normal in the lab. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and if they saw my house, they might think differently. <laughs> this is quite a, uh, a grim collection of ancient family portraits. They do know about my huge collection of Victorian medical equipment. So that's raised some eyebrows. Ooh, photos, please. Oh, that's that is so fascinating. You are such an interesting person, Bill, on top of... <laughs> I mean that in all the good ways. And I'm sure your professors feel it's refreshing to have somebody who has interests outside of genomic sequencing. All the interactions are always positive. I get a lot of questions, but in a, in a happy way. Mm -hmm. I've been having a really good year getting all these short stories published, another book coming out. I'm, I'm working on another novel on the side, a full-length novel, not a novella that I think is... It's really promising. It's everything gritty about the Midwest. So I'm really excited about it. 
Well, cool. cool. Yeah, definitely let us know. We'd love to let everybody that listens to us know about it because I think mm-hmm. I think they would love that. They would love that. I almost forgot. I have to mention before we go, my friend and I are about to start a blog and I will send you a link when it goes up. It's called Midwestern Mystery Machine. He's a photographer. I'm a writer. So we're traveling to different sites around the Midwest, different ghost towns, different haunted sites like Hell's Bridge in Rockford, Michigan, uh, the prison in Jackson, Michigan, taking photos, writing about it. It's going to be like a, a travel guide for haunted tourism. Oh, yeah. Well, Bill, a pleasure. As always, thank you so yes. much for coming on and talking to us again. I can't wait to release this. I can't wait to read your book. I can't wait to check out your blog. It all sounds like so much fun and all right up our alley. And I think everybody who's listening is going to really enjoy it as well. Thank you. This is so much fun. I love coming on. Hopefully you enjoyed hearing again from our friend Bill. Always talking about demons. Always writing about demons. Always having a spooky day. Homespun Haints is hosted by Becky Kielimnik and Diana Doty and produced by Homespun Haints Media LLC. Editing and music by Becky Kielimnik. Show notes by Diana Doty. If you have a ghost story and you'd like to be considered as a guest for this podcast, please visit our website at homespunhaints.com slash submit. A nature trail is more than a path. It's a place for weekend laughter moments of self-reflection, or a much-needed breath of fresh air. With All Trails Plus, you can plan your next hike, ride, or run with confidence so you can relax and enjoy the journey. All Trails Plus gives you all the info you need in one place so you can make the most of your time outdoors. Quickly discover new trails near you and spend less time driving and more time on the trail with the Distance Away feature. And get immersive trail previews and 3D views so you know what to expect before your first step. Want to go where cell service can't? Download the map to keep your route in hand and never get lost, even offline. You can even get alerts if you take an unexpected turn. There's a trail out there for everyone. Get outside today with three free months of All Trails Plus. Just use code PODCAST23 at alltrails.com slash podcast. That's three months free at alltrails.com slash podcast with code PODCAST23. Wait. Are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yep. It's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah. I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook.